Father God, um, our desire right now is that you would come and meet with us. Our desire is that you would remove any uh, any distractions, anything that would be a barrier to us seeing you in your word and encountering you in your glory, Father God. So please be merciful to us now. Open up our eyes. Help us see what we need to see. Remove anything in me that would, that would be a distraction or wrong, but Father, may you hold out Christ Jesus in your word so that myself and my friends here can be um, embraced by the glory of God in the face of Jesus and come to know you in a deeper way than we have before. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So most of you uh, no doubt know the story of Moses and the Israelites, especially when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law in his hands, um, and he had it inscribed on these tablets, and he comes down, and he finds the people of Israel in open rebellion against God. They're worshiping another God when he comes down. Um, and if you recall, he gets very upset with this scene. And he throws the tablets down, and a variety of things come to pass, but eventually he is interceding for the people of Israel, lest God break out against them and wipe them out completely. And so God, in his mercy, summons Moses back up to Mount Sinai again. And it's there that we have this scene in Exodus 34 where God descends onto the mountain and meets with Moses in a stunning display of his mercy and love and grace for his people. He says something amazing. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God reveals his name to Moses. He reveals his person, his character, who he really is. And he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So this is the Lord, <clears throat> and we uh, have been talking over the last few weeks, we made the point that when we see Lord or God in all caps in the Hebrew, that's not really the word Lord, which is Adonai in Hebrew. It is instead, in all caps, the personal name of the one true God, Yahweh. And when he declares, or when he gives Moses the law a second time, the law of the covenant that will bind him to his people Israel, he declares his name, Yahweh. And he says, this is what it means to be me. I am a God who is merciful and gracious. I am a God who is slow to anger. I am a God who abounds, abounds in steadfast love. I forgive transgression. I forgive iniquity. I forgive sin. This is who I am. However, 
I will by no means clear the guilty. I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. I, I won't look the other way. And this is profound. <clears throat> this is a profound revelation for Moses because it means that the God of the Bible, our Bible, our God, is a just God. He is a righteous God. He is a holy God, and he refuses to allow injustice to stand. What he's saying here at the tail end of this statement is that all sins will be punished. He guarantees it. He's promising it by this statement. But as you can see, this creates a kind of problem. It creates a paradox of sorts, a mystery that is at the center of our faith. How can God be just and not allow unpunished sin to go unpunished and yet also merciful and gracious and forgive sins. This is a huge dilemma. If he promises here that the guilty will not be cleared, that they will be punished as they are due to be punished, how can he possibly pardon them? And so for the last two weeks, we've been going through the book of Jonah, and Jonah at this point now stares this paradox directly in the face and answers it. We will come face to face with the answer to this problem of being merciful and just, of being righteous and gracious in the book of Jonah. <laughs> and so for the last two weeks, like I said, we've been exploring this book. Two Sundays ago, we saw Jonah. He's commanded by God to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites, and he does not obey God. Instead, he disagrees with God and goes in the opposite direction. He runs in a completely different direction. In fact, we find from chapter 4, verse 2, which we will get to in a few weeks as we move through the book, the reason that Jonah runs from the presence of God, the reason he will not obey God and preach to Nineveh. It says in Jonah 4.2, And he prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, and said, O Lord, is this not, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew that you were merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew this about God. He did not want to preach to Nineveh because he did not want them to have mercy. He didn't want God to relent from the disaster that he was going to show them. He wanted justice. He wanted justice to be served. And I'm sure if you see the language that he's using here, Jonah was not unfamiliar with Exodus 34. He knew this God. He's drawing the same words, the same language from that encounter between Moses and Yahweh on Mount Sinai. And these words aren't just attributes of God. They are attributes, but they're not just that. They are who God is. He embodies them in their fullness. To be merciful is to be like God. To be gracious is to be like God. This is our God. This is the God of Christianity. This is the God we worship every day of our lives. And although Jonah is fine with this idea in the abstract, this theological concept, and when it's directed to the people of Israel, 
The idea that God could direct grace and mercy and steadfast love to the people of Nineveh, who are a brutal, violent people, is not an idea he could be on board with. He despises that idea. He hates it. And so he gets on a ship. He goes in the opposite direction. He goes extreme west. Nineveh is east. He goes west, as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can go, and outside the presence of his own God, outside the presence of the Lord. But God, as we saw last week, is merciful and gracious. And he overtakes Jonah's ship with this massive storm, (laughs) and the sailors on it are scrambling. They know the storm's not normal. They're trying to figure out what is going on here. The ship is about to break apart. And so to figure that out, we get to verse 7 in chapter 1, and it says that they cast lots. We looked at this last week. Let's read it again, verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And it says, Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this? That you have done. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, of Yahweh, because he had told them. Now, if you were with us last week, you saw this play out. (laughs) Jonah does not immediately confess his connection to the storm, although he probably recognizes it almost immediately upon awaking and seeing, oh no, we're in deep trouble here. And uh, he doesn't confess at, at the start. He instead There has to be lots drawn and cast. And when it becomes clear that he is responsible, when it becomes clear that he's the one who actually is connected to this storm, he finally fesses up and explains who he is. He's a Hebrew. He serves Yahweh. They they know who Yahweh is because he's told them, I'm fleeing from Yahweh right now. That's why I'm on this trip. What they don't know, what they didn't know about Yahweh was that Yahweh is the creator of of the earth and the sea. He is the God of heaven. And when they connect those dots, they are very, very afraid. This is the same God that we saw in Exodus, Exodus 34. The same exact God. And they respond to this with, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? Because they realize this situation is much more grave than even we had imagined as the ship is about to break apart. Jonah's disobedience may well be the end of these men. And verse 11 continues, Then they said to to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So, so far in this story, 
We are at verse 11 of the first chapter. <clears throat> so far in this story, this is the first note, the first sign of hope in Jonah. Hope for Jonah. Up to this point, Jonah has not been interested in helping anybody else but himself. But we see here a kind of willingness to die for these men. Now, personally, I would like to believe that this was completely selfless. That this was completely selfless. He desired to give his life for these men so that the storm would cease and that they would be saved. And it's clear from chapter 2, which we're going to get into in the next two weeks, that there is something that is shifting around in his heart. There is something that's changing about him. He's coming to understand God in a new way. However, given all that we've seen so far and given what will come to pass in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it is more likely that rather than go to Nineveh, Jonah would prefer to die. He would prefer to die. Instead of calling out to God and saying, it's me, it's my fault, I did this, forgive me, I'll go to Nineveh, he tells them, throw me in the water. Throw me in the water. It's because of me that this is going to happen. Dying to me is better than Nineveh's salvation. And that might seem cruel to you on Jonah's part, because it, it is cruel, but it proves that Jonah's concept of God in his, his own righteousness is that if God were to pardon Nineveh, this wicked and evil nation, he would be maligning his own holiness, his own righteous standard, his own perfection by pardoning them. Think about it. It's, it's, it's not just uh, letting these people who are brutal and violent going unpunished. It is a matter of God saying, my value, my righteousness is not worth it. And theologically, Jonah's anger with the people of Nineveh over them dishonoring the glory of God is actually 100% correct. They have dishonored the glory of God. They have treated God with disdain. The thing he doesn't realize is that he's in the same boat with them. To forgive Nineveh would be to discredit God's justice. It would say, God, you're not just. These people have done atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. And you, you would act in that forgiveness as though those injustices are not a big deal. They are a big deal to everyone who suffered under Nineveh and the Assyrian people. But what Jonah doesn't realize is this is true about every single human being on the planet, including Jonah. And we'll see that as we press forward. Jonah tells them in this scene, throw me overboard. Throw me into the sea and it will be quieted for you. He, he sees his life being spent for theirs as a sacrifice for the sailors, even though he probably is doing it just to deny mercy to Nineveh. And so how do the pagan Gentile sailors respond to Jonah's request? Verse 13 tells us, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard. He tells them to throw him in the water. 
He, they respond by rowing hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So get this, when these Gentile, these pagan sailors are faced with Jonah's solution, throw me in the water, they don't. It says, nevertheless, they get back on their oars and they row even harder. It says in the Hebrew, they dig in, they do everything they can to get back to dry land. They refuse to throw Jonah in the sea. They don't want to do that. They don't want to resort to that. Even though he's told them, you should do this. It's my fault that you're here. These sailors are showing mercy. They are showing grace. It is Jonah's fault that they're in this situation. It's Jonah that caused this. He's guilty. He's admitted as much. And yet they show mercy here, which is evidence of something we saw last week, that there is a shift that is going on in these sailors' hearts as they come face to face with the God of heaven, Yahweh, the one true God. Something inside them is changing, even toward Jonah, who has admitted that it's his fault that this has come upon them. And so they refuse initially to throw him overboard until the storm gets ridiculously worse. And so verse 14 explains this. Therefore, they called out to the Lord after the storm has gotten increasingly more tempestuous. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So notice here <laughs> that the sailors are using the, na- the, lo- the word Lord here in our English translations, but the Hebrew name Yahweh. They are using the covenant name of the Hebrew God, the one true God, and they're calling out to him for mercy. They're pleading with him to spare their lives because they've done everything they can think of to avoid throwing Jonah overboard. But now the, the storm is insurmountable. It's more treacherous than, than it was even before, and there's no other option. They have to do this. This is what Jonah has told them, and so they pray to Yahweh, don't lay on us innocent blood. If Jonah is innocent of this storm, what, what has brought this storm, don't lay on us that blood. You've done as you pleased. You brought the storm to this boat. We're doing what we think is best. So they pick up Jonah, they throw him in, and immediately the sea is still. So still that they recognize this is a supernatural thing. God did this, and it says they feared the Lord exceedingly. This is a transformative experience for these sailors. They are coming in, count, they're, they're coming in contact with the one true God. And now they know him. They know who he is. They know it's Yahweh. And this happened ultimately because of Jonah's sacrifice. The display of him being pulled into the water and the, the storm silencing, even despite his intentions, is what causes them to fear the Lord exceedingly, like uh, verse 16 says. Now this is a stunning scene on many levels. There's a variety of ways we could unpack this scene. We're gonna focus on one this morning. 
and it's this Jonah's sacrifice. To save the men on the ship, Jonah must give up his life. And when he does that, the sea is suddenly calmed. And what that means is that Jonah's sacrifice redeems the lives of these men. Now, this concept is not foreign to any of us. It's not foreign to anyone on the planet, really. Um, It's called a substitutionary sacrifice. It's when something is given up for something else. You substitute one thing for another. You give up in the short term for something in the long run, or you give up something for another person. It's a concept that all of us know, um, which is why we have a motto, no pain, no gain. We give up joy in the short run for gain in the long run. We recognize that there is a need for sacrifice in our lives on a daily basis, in our families. Sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, is not a foreign concept for us. And we see it as a noble and good thing, which is the reason why we love to watch movies and read books that have these heroes that are laying down their life for other people. This is, this is a concept that is woven into the DNA of the human being, the human condition. And it is a concept, of course, that's at the center of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> from the beginning to end, the scriptures repeatedly hold out this picture of a substitutionary sacrifice. And one of these holding outs of that picture is the book of Jonah, this event in Jonah. Now, as we said, Jonah may not have had the best intentions. We don't really know what his intentions were when he asked them to throw him in. We can only speculate based on what's in the book. But this event at face value is painting a picture that is seen in every corner of the Bible, across the entirety of the Bible, and it is this. There is a need for a substitute. There is a need for a substitute. The sailors here needed a substitute. The only way they were going to escape the storm is if Jonah was put into the sea. That was the only way. But their need in that moment, in that storm, is only an echo of the real need that they actually had. And it is only an echo of the real need that everybody in this story and in the entire Bible actually have. The city of Nineveh, the sailors on the ship, and Jonah all have a far greater need than surviving a storm or physically living another day and that need that is far greater is the greatest need of their soul and it relates to what we read at the very beginning Exodus 34 God in Exodus 34 is a holy and righteous God and he is the judge of all the earth it says in Genesis And he's not only a judge or the judge, but he is a just and perfect judge that according to Exodus 34, will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He refuses to do that. And so the greatest problem that Nineveh or that the sailors or that Jonah faces is this. They are guilty before God. We expressed this earlier. They're all in the same boat. They are guilty before God. 
in our first week, we talked about what it means to be guilty before God. Like, why is that the case? Why It's not natural, it's not intuitive to suggest that we are guilty before God. Why is that the case? In the first week, we discussed that the main problem with the human condition, all of mankind, all of us in this room, all of us on this planet, isn't actually individual sins that we do, though that is an issue. That is a problem. It's a huge problem. The main problem is a dark and tragic exchange that happens in our heart. The main problem with Jonah and with Nineveh and with all human beings isn't that they lie, cheat, and steal. That is a problem, but that's not the main problem. The main problem isn't that we do things with our hands that's wrong or we do things with our eyes that are, are, is wrong or our mouths. The main problem is that there is, a, there is a shift that happens in the heart of a human being before any actions come to the surface. And it is a subconscious or conscious turning away from the glory and worth of the one true God in embracing anything else that we consider ultimate and supreme in our lives. That's the main problem. We're going to see what Jonah's specific problem is in the coming weeks. But the question that we have here that we should ask isn't, you know, how many lies have we told or how many things have we, sold, we stolen? The question is, what is our supreme loyalty? What is our supreme allegiance? Who are we most ultimately bowing down to, reverencing by our actions, by our attitudes? Because the root of our allegiance, the root of what we are most loyal to, out of that flows every action in our life. Every decision in our life will, will be determined based on what we have affections for. So it's not just Jonah or Nineveh or the sailors. This is embracing all people into this concept. As we see Jonah plunge below the water, we have to think about not just the sailors on that ship. We have to think about every human being on the planet and we can do that because there's very sober words in the Bible about the state of every human being on the planet. Romans 3, for example, Paul says, none is righteous. He's talking about mankind. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And I could continue. Paul certainly does. He does not play games in Romans 3. Um, but even just listening to how he begins to frame the idea of unrighteousness in the heart of a human, he says, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. He's not even getting to actions. He doesn't start with no one obeys God. You notice that? He doesn't start with nobody does the right things because that's not in his mind the most fundamental problem as he quotes this passage from Psalms. The, the most fundamental issue isn't that we don't, don't obey God, even though that is an issue, that's the outworking, but it is rather that we don't seek him, we don't embrace him, we don't delight in him as our greatest treasure. And from that is a fountain of unrighteousness. Any unrighteous activity or sin that you can conceive of 
comes from that exchange. And so this exchange is the greatest problem that humanity faces. Paul summarizes the exchange in Romans 3.23 when he says, famously, you guys will recognize this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this phrase, to fall short of the glory of God, does not mean immediately that we are less glorious than God or that we are less righteous than God. Um, even though it might per- be perceived to be that, it, the word falls short here, it's one word in the Greek, it's hustereo, and what it means is to lack something crucial. What Paul is saying here is that we fundamentally lack the glory of God because in chapter one of Romans, we have exchanged it for something else. The response that's, uh, I was reading the uh, New City Catechism as we start to look at it for um, the kiddos. Uh, the kiddos are going to be going through New City Catechism in the near future. Question number 16, I think it is, is what is sin? And there's a listing of what it is. One of those phrases in there to describe sin is living without reference to God. It is to live as though God isn't God, which is very revealing. That's what it means to exchange the glory of God for the glory of something else. And the reason I'm spending time on this, and and I know that we've engaged this a few times over the last few weeks, the reason I'm spending time on this is because it's a big deal. It is the biggest deal. That is not an understatement. It is the biggest deal and the scariest problem that the greatest reality in the universe is treated like a fiction and ignored. That's a problem. That's the biggest problem. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about atheists or even secularist. I'm really talking about everyone. God is the reason that we exist. Every single moment of our existence, he's the reason that that happens. And he's the one for whom we were made. And yet, think about this. Just, I mean, I'm thinking about myself now. And I invite you to think about yourself. How often in the given course of a day do we sideline him in our thoughts and live without reference to him? Or even worse than that, sideline him in our affections and love something more than him. Not because of him, but more than him. We make, uh, and I think this is right, we make a big deal about injustice in the world. Injustice is a problem. Christians should fight injustice in the world to the death. That's one of the things that I desire for our church to champion every step of the way. Injustice in the world, whether locally, whether nationally, whether on the other side of the planet, needs to be fought. But the greatest injustice in the world, and really the root of all injustices in the world, is to treat God, who is the most worthy, as though he's worthless. And herein is the problem. Herein is the storm for us. This is the storm that we find ourselves in because God has promised that he's going to judge justly. He's not going to sweep anything underneath the carpet. He won't. He will judge justly. He will punish every sin. He will by no means, to use the precise wording from Exodus 34, by no means clear the guilty. He's not. And that fact should cause us a great amount of unease. 
if you're anything like me. <laughs> it should cause you unease because if we fail to feel the weight of that, honestly, we are failing to see the worth of God. He really deserves this kind of attention and affection and devotion. And to not give it to him is a kind of moral horror that is like treating absolute reality, who God is, as unreality. As though he's not that. And again, I'm not, um, I just want to put this in perspective because we're all believers here. And I think it's easy to anesthetize ourselves to this idea as though it's those people. I'm not talking about blatant rebellion or unbelief. I'm talking about finding God less interesting than Netflix. I'm talking about finding God less interesting to, than Xbox or PlayStation or whatever, or football, or soccer. I'm talking about the recognition that God has given us these things as gifts to point back to him, but us collecting our attention and putting them on these smaller things and finding them more intriguing, more interesting, more exciting, more exhilarating than being with him, learning about him, treasuring him, enjoying him, we need to feel a little bit of the weight of that. Because I don't think we do. I think we, I think, we think of sin and these wrongdoings that we commit, but there's something that happens underneath those things. It, it is like a trampling of his infinite worth to desire things over the God who made them and made us for him. And it's a terrible prospect, just in reflection, to do it once. And I'm speaking for myself here. No less to do it continually every day without stopping. Jeremiah 2.12, um, Jeremiah is reflecting, it's actually God is speaking through Jeremiah and saying in Jeremiah 2.12, um, when he reflects that Israel has done this exact thing, fountains of living water, don't want you. I would love to carve a cistern out of the ground that will never, ever give me water. And when God tells the heavens, this is how you should respond to that, he says, be appalled. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. That's the appropriate response that angels should have to all that we've been talking about today. Because they know the worth of God and they are astonished that a rebellion would go unchecked, unpunished. The question that is raised objectively is, can God be a just God if he just doesn't address this? If he doesn't engage this, if he, does, if he just ignores it? And the answer is no. The answer is no, he cannot. God cannot be just if he just allows mankind to treat his worth like trash and to treat his existence as though he wasn't that as though he was a small, negligible thing that they can just put on the side. And, and so we have Exodus 34. He will by no means clear the guilty. That's Nineveh. That's Jonah. That's the sailors. And that's us. God does not regard his glory lightly like humanity does. And he will, in fact, punish every sin. And yet... This is the exciting and exhilarating fact about God. That's not all he is. He is not simply just. 
Remember what he said in Exodus 34. What is his name? Who is he? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Think about yourself, how, how slow he has been to get angry about anything. Think about how long he waits before he steps in to show us mercy. Keep steadfast love for thousands, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's our God. He really is merciful. He really is gracious. He really is a God who is abounding in steadfast love. And he is astonishingly and scandalously a forgiver of sins, iniquities, and transgressions. And so this is the main problem with the Christian scriptures. It's the main problem with Christian scriptures. Other religions don't address this issue because they don't have a solution for it. But Christianity does have a solution. The problem is God cannot be just if he allows this to go unpunished. He can't pardon the criminal unless something happens. And again, stepping back, if we don't think this is a, a big problem, we, will, we fail to understand it rightly. This is the center of Christianity. This is the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. For God to forgive and, uh, without punishment is for God to trample his own value and glory. How does God show justice and mercy? How does he show justice and mercy and yet by no means clear the guilty? And the solution is the very picture that is held out by the book of Jonah. The solution is a sacrificial substitute. It's referred to in the scriptures as atonement. Romans 3.23 says this, just to continue what we read earlier. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They lack God's glory. They've exchanged it. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This verse, these three verses, answers the paradox. This verse solves the paradox. And it's probably the most important verse in the Bible, to be quite honest. Because everything in the Bible hangs on this verse being real and true for us. It says that everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. We all lack the glory of God because of this exchange. Yet we are justified by grace that is a gift from God. God gives us a gift. And what is that gift? It is our justification, our forgiveness before God. He makes us righteous. And he does that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, God put his son forward like the sailors did with Jonah as a substitute such that Jesus in his death on the cross, which is what by his blood means, in his death on the cross, 
He is a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that he, he stands in our place. He bears the punishment. He bears the, justi- the, the, the justice of God by taking on our sin and placing it on himself. And so what happens here, this is an amazing thing. The cross of Jesus Christ is Christ intercepting God's justice for us and cutting it off and absorbing all of it such that none of it comes to us. He is our substitute. And for everyone who receives him by faith, he pays in full every single sin you've ever committed. Every split second of indifference about God is paid from your first breath to your last. That's what happens on the cross. There is no greater, no more radical love than that. It is exceedingly gracious, exceedingly merciful. What happened in the book of Jonah for those sailors is what happens for the entirety of God's people. Everyone who receives him by faith through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the solution to the paradox. This is how God accomplishes what he promised Moses 1,500 years before Jesus was even born, that he was going to enter into the world himself. He was going to do this. He was going to do it and make sure it was done. Through his son, he dies in the place of the guilty so that they would be set free. And Paul continues in Romans 3 to tell us why this was so critical that God did it this way. We cannot take this for granted. This is so critical. God is a holy, just, and righteous God. How can he do this? Verse 25 begins to tell us. It says that our redemption in the gospel, that was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, his patience, God had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God, our God, might be just and shockingly the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is so critical for us to see. It is at the center of our faith. Because God is holy, righteous, and just, he could not simply allow or tolerate or pass over the sins of the world indefinitely. At some point, those sins needed to be dealt with. They needed to be paid for, lest he proves to be a bad judge. So any judge that you would know in the world, if a criminal who is responsible for someone's murder or many people's murders um, or something even worse than that, some sort of horrible atrocity, If that judge looked at that person and said, innocent, I'm going to let you go free, we would say that is an unjust judge, should not be a judge. God is not that. He cannot be that. Any God who can forgive like that is an unjust God. And so the atonement that we're looking at here that's pictured in Jonah is at the center of what our religion is is anchored in. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those sins needed to be paid for. He needed to vindicate his worth. 
And so God solves it this way. He enters into the world, pays for those sins himself, past, present, and future, all of them with his own blood. It's God who bears the justice of God on our behalf. It's God who bears his wrath for sin so that he could vindicate his holiness and his righteousness and forgive sinners and be merciful and loving to sinners. This is, like I said, the center of the Christian faith. This is the center of reality. Everything hangs on this. Otherwise, there's no reason for us at all. This forgiveness needed to happen and it needed to happen through Jesus Christ. God is both just, completely vindicated, no sin unpunished, by no means clears the guilty, and the justifier. And we need to feel the weight of it. Christians need to feel the weight of what happened because it's not a given that God would do things this way. It isn't. That he would both uphold his worth and forgive people is not a given. I think we tend to, because we grew up in a culture or maybe we just have been around Christians so long that we assume that this should have happened. It actually shouldn't have been this way. It shouldn't have been this way if it were not for the fact that God is merciful and gracious and loving. And so this is the point of this scene in Jonah. As we come to the center of the book, we look at this scene. This man is hurled overboard. He plunges to the bottom of the sea and he is prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ, the atonement of Jesus Christ. Jonah is not Jesus, not by a million miles. He needs Jesus just like us, but he is pointing to Christ by being a substitute and giving his life in the place of others. And so as we close in communion here in the next few moments, what I would like to do is ready our hearts together by reading a passage that talks about the atoning work of Christ Jesus, talks about the substitution of Christ Jesus. Um, in Hebrew culture, when Jews would celebrate Yom Kippur, guess what book of the Bible? Yom Kippur is the, the day of atonement. It's the holiest day in the Hebrew faith. Guess what book of the Bible they will read? The book of Jonah. That's not by accident. There is a connection between the atoning work that God set up through Jesus Christ in this book. And Isaiah 53 gives us the clearest picture, 700 years before Jesus even walked on the earth, of what Christ would accomplish. And I'm going to personalize its language just a little bit, not changing its meaning at all. I just want you to feel the weight of this. If you've received Christ by faith, like Romans 3 says, this is for you. This isn't an abstract idea. I, I really I wanna, I wanna make sure we're clear about this. I want you to feel the weight of this. This was a real man, the God-man, who entered in human history, was nailed to a tree, allowed the justice of God to rack against his being, his existence, until he could say, it's finished. I pay for everything. And so we need to know that he, when he bled, he bled for you individually, not an ambiguous group of people, not a mass of humanity without faces and names. You, he bled for you, he suffered for you, he died for you. Receive Isaiah 53 
as though that's true. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought you peace. By his wounds, you are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, all of us have turned, every one to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see you completely forgiven with his own righteousness and he shall be satisfied. What kind of love are we dealing with that God was not simply content to show his justice, to show his righteousness, but he desired to to give up the greatest thing in the universe in order for us to share with him in his righteousness. This is the reason we have the book of Jonah. This is the reason we have Jonah being thrown into the sea is so that we would understand with greater depth this is God's plan and purpose to give his son so that we could be part of his family, so that we could be made righteous just like he is. Let's pray. Father God, we it is impossible for me to articulate the glory and the splendor of what it means to be forgiven. And so I pray that, that we would feel the weight of that as we receive the elements, as we receive the, the body and the blood, as we receive the, the bread and the cup, Father God, that we would reflect on what we're taking in, that we are receiving by faith this atoning work, the new covenant in his blood, that we would not fail to see it, Father God, how glorious it is to be justified before the King, to be righteous, because you made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we would be the righteousness of God. You did that for us. And that is an absurdity, Father. Let that absurdity sink into the depths of our souls so that we would be transformed by it, Father God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the atoning work of Christ, that it would become everything to us, everything we want to talk about, everything we want to think about, that our lives would be rooted in the fact that you didn't give up on us, you didn't simply vindicate your holiness, but you entered in, embraced all of the things that were broken in us, and granted us righteousness that was not our own. May we feel that, Father God, and may it transform our hearts to be loving, gracious, to take with great seriousness our time with God, purchased by the infinite blood of Jesus, to take with great seriousness our affections toward God and our desire to pursue him with every breath that we have. Father, I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. 
We're relying on you to do any of this, Father. Amen.